So the passage before us today is Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 through 12. After a lot of prayer, I had some other plans for where our sermons were going to go, but I've decided that let's just return to Matthew and stick with Matthew through the end of the summer, and then we'll transition to a different book for the fall. So we're back in the Sermon of the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 through 12. And we're going to pick up where we left off the last time we were in Matthew. Jesus was making a counterintuitive point to his disciples and followers. He was teaching something that really goes against all of our natural instincts. Let's read it together. This is Jesus' words. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus' basic message here is to embrace mistreatment for trusting and following him. Expect it and embrace it. Now, this goes against our natural inclinations. I've shared with you before, I took some sort of a like personality profile test about conflict, and I am, per the experts, 100% conflict-averse. I don't enjoy conflict whatsoever. Some of you guys might be psychos out there, and you love conflict, and you love rolling up your sleeves and getting into some kind of an argument. I don't understand that in the least. But the Bible is pretty clear. Identifying with Jesus, trusting and following Jesus, will likely lead to mistreatment in this fallen world. Remember from before when we talked about the preceding verses that one of the main reasons for this is that Christianity is extremely exclusive. To be a Christian is to believe that Jesus is the one and only way to be made righteous, to be made right with God. And to believe that means that you must also believe that every other way to be made righteous is false. Now that goes for other religions. That means Christians cannot believe that Jesus is the one and only way to the Father and also believe that Islam leads to the Father. Jesus just did not leave that door open. He said, it's only through faith and allegiance to me. So you cannot be a Christian and also believe that following the Jewish law leads to righteousness. You cannot also believe that following the tenets of Buddhism leads to righteousness. Now, I think we understand that pretty well, that Christianity is an exclusive religion, but it also excludes those subtle um, Religions in disguise, those other ways that we pursue righteousness, cannot lead to righteousness if Jesus' claims are accurate and correct. That means that you cannot be politically conservative enough to be righteous. And you cannot be progressive enough to be righteous. You can't be patriotic enough to be righteous. You can't be green enough to be righteous. You can't be tolerant enough to be counted righteous before God. You can't be diverse enough to be counted righteous before God. None of those things makes a person righteous. And I have to believe that some of the reason why those things are so heightened and intense and such conflict surrounds them 
is because many people associate those with their own righteousness. But there's only one source for righteousness, faith in Jesus Christ. And that is so exclusive that it's clear why that would be infuriating to those who feel they have found a source of righteousness apart from Jesus. The message of the cross is, no, that doesn't make you righteous. You're still in your sins unless you're trusting and following Jesus. Only repentant faith in Jesus leads to righteousness. So if you were to picture those who might be most likely to mistreat you for being a Christian, what do you first picture? When I was a kid, I grew up in a Baptist church, and if anything like this was ever preached, I would probably picture like the most overtly sinful people, like, I don't, I don't know, people with like, a Satan imagery on the back of their leather jacket and just going around and kicking kittens and tripping old ladies, like just the worst evil sinful people. Those are the ones that are most likely going to persecute Christians. But when you read through the Bible, it's clear that it's actually the religiously self-righteous that tend to persecute. In fact, when Jesus was here, he ate and spent time with the overtly sinful people, with the tax collectors who were hated in that day because they were considered Jewish traitors with prostitutes and sinners, just openly sinful people. And the religious people, the Pharisees and scribes came to him and said, what are you doing? Why are you hanging out with these sinful people? And do you remember what Jesus said? He said, I didn't come for the self-righteous. I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the sinners. It's those who are most convinced that they are self-righteous in some way, from some source other than Jesus, that are the most likely to mistreat us for our exclusive claims through Jesus Christ. I think it's really interesting when I think about uh, our day and age, I think the most, one of the, the most prominent sources of friction between Christians and non-Christians has to do with topics of gender and sexuality. But when you look at it in light of Scripture, I don't think it's actually about gender and sexuality. I think it's about competing sources of righteousness. See, as Christians, we believe the only way to righteousness is a total abandonment of ourselves because we are so sinfully screwed up and a complete, humble surrender to Jesus for forgiveness and a submission to his ways. And everything's on the table, including our perception of who we are, including our perception of our sexuality, gender, all of that is on the table submitted to Jesus Christ. I think the source of conflict is a differing source of righteousness which comes through self-acceptance and self-celebration. And if it wasn't gender and sexuality, it would be something else. But deep down at the roots, I think that's really the conflict. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, well, I understand what the Bible is saying, that we should probably expect mistreatment for the cause of Christ, and that if it comes, we should basically embrace it. But if I'm honest, I don't like it. Like That is not a cheerful sermon that Matt's giving this morning. I don't want to be reviled, as it says. Blessed are you when others revile you. That means to be insulted, to be criticized in an angry, abusive manner. That's the technical definition. 
I don't want to be criticized in an angry, abusive manner by anyone. That does not sound like a fun afternoon to me. Uh, down at the roots of that Greek word is the idea of showing teeth, like, like fury, like rage, insult. Uh, I don't want to be the subject of some social media smackdown for any reason, including being associated with Jesus. I don't uh, want to have demonstrators outside of our church at any point frothing at the mouth about our message out there. It's not something I would look forward to. I don't want uh, family members who are not Christians or who uh, dis- disagree with the true gospel of salvation in Jesus alone to yell at me over like Thanksgiving dinner. None of that sounds appealing. Persecution doesn't sound appealing. It says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. That's the idea of being chased down and hunted. Persecution is an active pursuit kind of word. It's, there's one thing when someone might passively just like get mad at you because you step on their toes, but this is like people coming after people because they're identified with Jesus. I'm not looking forward to that ever happening to any of us. Uh, the other thing he mentions here, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. It's basically slander. Like, how could that be blessed? How could you be blessed when these things happen? It just does not fit, if we're honest, like emotionally, what that feels like. Well, the reason is because it means you must be on the right path. If we trigger that kind of response from those who do not believe that Jesus is the one way to righteousness, we can be blessed and rejoice, not because it's fun or feels good, but because it means we're on the right track. We can embrace mistreatment for trusting and following Jesus because it means we're on the right path. Now, if you're mistreated because you annoy somebody or because you're a jerk or because you don't choose your words very carefully and you use them recklessly, you should not consider yourself blessed and you really have nothing to rejoice in. I have a friend who's a Christian who posted on Facebook a very opinionated little paragraph disagreeing with uh, Simone Biles opting out due to mental health reasons. And he still, the fire rages on his Facebook of people just beating him to death for his opinion about this. Now, whether you agree with his opinion about that or not, he is being reviled. There are some angry insults coming at him on Facebook. I would say he's being persecuted. There seem to be people who are like finding him. I don't even know if they know him who are adding to the comments, disagreeing with him. And I would say he's probably being slandered. People are reading into his statement, all kinds of things. I know him pretty well, and I don't think he meant that. But he's not being persecuted for his association with Jesus Christ. He just chose to put up a really strongly worded opinion about a really sensitive subject, probably pretty thoughtlessly. And now he's getting kicked around for it. That's not what we're talking about here. If it's on account of Jesus, it says on on my account, if it's on Jesus' account, if it's because you're trusting in Jesus as your Savior and you're following Jesus as your Lord and you are being honest about that in conversation, saying that that is the truth, that this is what you believe, that it's the only way to righteousness, if you are receiving mistreatment because of that, then you can consider yourself blessed. In fact, 
it says rejoice and be glad rejoice and be glad that's like celebration language that's like give each other high fives fist pump in the air you just made a three-pointer type language rejoice be glad now again why well not because it's fun but he gives us two reasons. He says, for, he says, rejoice and be glad for, and that's how you know he's about to explain himself, why you can rejoice and be glad. For, reason number one, your reward is great in heaven. So the reward that's going to be coming to you is going to so far outweigh the mistreatment that you're experiencing now, you can rejoice and be glad. You know you're on the right path headed toward heavenly reward because you're sticking with Jesus even when there's pressure to turn away. And then he gives another reason. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So you can rejoice and be glad because you know you're on the right path and heavenly rewards are going to outweigh the pain of this mistreatment. And looking back, you can see that God's prophets, those who spoke the gospel, have been mistreated in the past and you're in good company. You're in good company. Jeremiah is a good example of this. He's one of the prophets in the Old Testament. He probably received the, the harshest mistreatment during his ministry. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was put in the stocks. Uh, an angry mob rose up and nearly had him put to death. He was accused of being a traitor against Israel. He was imprisoned. And then my personal favorite, he was lowered into a dry well, like a pit, and left for dead. One thing I think is interesting, they didn't throw him down in the pit. They, like, lowered him gently into the pit, but then they pulled up the rope and left him for dead. Now, if you were ever lowered into a dry well because of your faith and allegiance to Jesus, I don't expect you to be down there saying, this is awesome. I am so glad I rejoice in this. It's not going to feel good. I certainly hope that that never comes to us, but it does mean that you're probably doing something right. As we grow as Christians, our values shift, and we begin to, to value heavenly rewards more than earthly praise and earthly acceptance. We prefer well-done, good and faithful servant from Jesus in the end than applause from people now for agreeing with their counterfeit sources of righteousness. We begin to want to emulate the prophets more than we want to emulate any role models here and now. We begin to value Jesus more than not getting lowered down into dry wells. We're willing to put up with being reviled, persecuted, and slandered, if that's what it takes, to stick with Jesus, the sole source of righteousness. So we're going to stop at verse 12 and pivot toward communion now, we can acknowledge that it is getting increasingly uncomfortable to hold on to the basic teachings of Jesus Christ. And it's especially difficult, I think, for young people who are in school right now. Uh, we work with the teenagers on Wednesday nights. We have an awesome group on Wednesdays. I always forget to tell you about anything that goes on on Wednesdays, but we have a great group. We can usually count on somewhere between 10 to 15 people there, and they face increasing friction in schools for holding to the basic teachings of Christianity. And the trajectory seems that it's probably going to get harder and harder. I think they are really the ones on the very front lines of possibly experiencing real reviling, real persecution, real slander 
for their faith and allegiance in Jesus. And I just say all that because I think it's really important what we're doing here right now. And I really long to see more of our youngest people in here with us because we're going to need this. We're going to need to come together like this and renew our faith together and encourage one another and help each other remember the prophets and help each other remember and anticipate our heavenly reward so that we don't lose heart as it gets harder. The most tangible thing that Jesus gave to us for that is communion, and we're going to respond to this text now first by receiving communion. Um, Our instructions for this come from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. First Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 23, kind of explains what this is that we're about to do. Jesus gave us this simple, tangible reminder of his body broken for us on the cross, his blood shed for us, to keep his people for all time continually recentering on faith in him together. And I think it's one of the most important things we do together as a church, as simple as it seems, uh, even though we're doing it with these small little uh, packets with a tiny little piece of bread and a tiny little bit of juice. It's, it's not about the physical objects. It's about what it's pointing us to, what it's reconnecting us to. And so I just want to read through the instructions given to us, and then we will receive communion together. This is the Apostle Paul writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, authorized by Jesus to write, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So when we receive that little piece of bread, don't think about the little piece of bread. Think about Jesus's body broken for you on the cross so that a sinner like you and a sinner like me, that we could be forgiven of our sins. We never want to forget it. Verse 25, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when you have that little tiny cup, don't think so much about the tiny cup and the juice. Think about Jesus' blood being shed for payment for our sins so that we could be welcomed into the new covenant, the new relationship with God, based on Jesus, and remember that he is coming back. Verse 27 goes on, Whoever therefore, because of the extreme holy significance of this, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Simply what he's saying is we are not to take this lightly. Even though it's a tiny little piece of bread and it's a cute little cup, we are not to take this lightly. These people he was writing to here were uh, coming into more of a full meal kind of communion setting, and they were just gorging themselves on food and drink and selfishly cutting in line, and they were getting drunk, and it was a, it was a mess. 
Now, obviously, we're not going to be able to do that even if we wanted to with these little, little uh, elements here. But the idea is we don't come into this lightly. It is for Christians. And to be clear, that means you are someone who has repented, who has turned from depending on yourself or any other source for righteousness and has trusted in Jesus as your Savior based on his death for you on the cross. And you're one who follows him as your Lord. You believe he was raised from the dead, he's alive, to be obeyed and followed in the word. Now, I think it's important that you be baptized before you receive communion. I think that's the proper uh, order of things. Baptism is when you make that public. Communion is when you continually renew it. Now, you don't have to be a member of Doolin's Grove to receive communion, but you do need to be a Christian. And I think it's important that you be a Christian who does not have any ongoing unrepentant sin in your life. So as Christians, we are still sinful. We are not fully perfected. I will sin, you will sin. But there's a difference between sinning while we are in pursuit of following Jesus' ways and living in ongoing unrepentant sin, embraced as a lifestyle. This is just part of who I am. And I trust the Holy Spirit to convict if that's the case among us. So, we will now pass out these elements and receive them together. If for any reason you feel like perhaps you should not receive these elements, you're not sure you're a Christian, or you're not sure you may just have ongoing unrepentant sin in your life, I encourage you not to receive the elements. Uh, Even if you take it in hand, I encourage you not to eat the bread or drink the cup. But instead to come and see me, we can pray about whatever it is that's causing you hindrance after the service. Okay. So I'm going to pray for us, and then I'll invite uh, Lee and Mark to hand these out. Father, thank you for Jesus, and thank you for giving us this simple, tangible way of of reigniting, renewing our faith and allegiance to him. Pray that your Holy Spirit would search all of our hearts and reveal to us, uh, one, are we in Christ or not? And if we're not in Christ, I pray that uh, we would let the cup and the bread pass but we would first commit ourselves through faith in Jesus. And then secondly, if we have any ongoing unrepentant sin in our hearts and in our lives, that you would convict us of that and bring us to full repentance and confession before you so that all who receive this could do so with a clean and clear conscience and full confidence, humble, repentant confidence in Jesus. And we submit ourselves to you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.